Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the easiest, fastest, and most secure way to swap your digital assets. Don't run the risk of leaving your funds on a centralized exchange. Visit Shapeshift.io to get started today. And this episode is also sponsored by my patrons on Patreon. We got about 40, got about 700 bucks a month. And so I like to give different examples each episode for why they support. And here's why Mark says he pledges. He says, I support you to outsource my moral obligation in the crypto space. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Uh, there's lots of scams and various random ICOs, energy being used that's going to lead to climate change, whatever. Uh, so if you're feeling guilty, uh, you could be like Mark um, and uh, maybe pay me on Patreon. <laughs> uh, and I will do my best to fix it. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is with Robin Hansen. And uh, first off, let me just say, I'm sorry, I, I was like typing really loudly in this episode. So um, that's weird when I was like taking notes. So sorry about that. Um, but Robin is a fascinating person. Um, and it's kind of interesting because he's not kind of a traditional blockchain figure. He's actually um, more on kind of the academic side that he's connected to blockchain through Futarchy and prediction markets. Um, he also spoke at ETH Denver. Um, but he's more on the kind of human system side, um, which is, you know, how we as humans operate. And this is different than what we do most of the time on the show where we talk about kind of the macro systems, like where we're headed um, from a humanity perspective and also software systems like, um, you know, how does, you know, how do crypto economic primitives work and what have you. Um, and so it's interesting, though, because the human systems are also super important because it's how do we work and understanding how we operate and, and work is very important because then it allows us to say, hey, this is the lens that we have on the world. And so when we look at macro systems or software systems, we know our own biases and things like that, um, that, that, that change how we view the world. So in any case, um, that is the show. And, and we talk a lot about his book, Elephant in the Brain which is honestly a beautiful book. Um, it's about motives, and um, motives are really all about this why question, which is one that I love, which is like, why do you do X? Why do you do Y? And his claim is that we self-deceive ourselves a lot, um, and we go pretty deep on this, and you'll you'll hear as Rob and I talk, I think he's one of the best thinkers Um just his ability to kind of vocally process through things is really high. Um, he can go to the meta level a lot, which is talking about what you're talking about, um, kind of as like Naval Ravkant says, always operating in debug mode. Um, and, and I think he does this and he actually makes this claim himself that he's, you know, there are a lot of nerds who don't necessarily get these kind of human systems naturally and so they need to kind of break down how everything is working in order to operate within those systems so he's really really good at that and you kind of notice in the episode um, as he talks he'll kind of add these little tangents um, or these little asides or prefixes before he starts talking about something and that's essentially him operating at that meta level um, so definitely check that out and he's also really good at breaking things into buckets uh, and so we talk about all these different kind of bucket types, you know, signaling and non-signaling, short-term versus long-term signaling norms, and then meta-norms and also automatic norms. Um, we also talk about like who the signal is pointing towards, whether it's, um, you know, essentially thinking about the speaker who's doing the signaling versus the audience who's receiving the signaling. Um, and we also 
talk about this thing, weaponized sacredness, which is like internal versus external motives for signaling. So those are a bunch of different buckets that we go into. This is all say, I think Robin is a very good um, vocal processor of information. Um, you know, we talked about a couple other things. Patreon as a way towards better signals because they're they're more kind of weighty signals aligned with a more uh, kind of expert audience. Um, and when Rob and I were talking about that, he said, ooh, you made me realize something I didn't think about. Um, we also talked about ETH Denver and academic mechanism design versus kind of the blockchain world where people are doing kind of perhaps intelligence signaling around mechanism design um, but also it's a space where there are real good incentives to actually test these mechanism designs in the wild which hasn't really existed for a while and with that hope you enjoy the show Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take a systems-thinking approach to doing good in the world, and we have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. And today, we'll primarily be focusing on Series B, Human Systems, where we ask the question, how do humans work, and how can you work, live, and communicate more effectively? And today, I'm very happy to introduce Robin Hansen to the show. Robin is an Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University and the author of two books, An Elephant in the Brain and Age of M. And he's also done a bunch of other things, um, but uh, we probably won't talk about them today. But Robin, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to dive in. And of those two books, we're going to be primarily talking about um, Elephant in the Brain today. And uh, Elephant in the Brain came out this year sometime within the last month, and I read it and it I loved it. And I just want to kind of give a high-level overview for how I saw the book, especially with these first five chapters. I thought that you did a really good job of kind of um, bringing up this argument, this kind of evolutionary argument about why we as people kind of self-deceive ourselves. Um, so here's here's the argument through chapters like two through five, essentially. You say, hey, we have these, you know, big brains um, and we're competing to get bigger and bigger brains. Um, and it's kind of sad because we kind of turn into redwoods where they each get higher and higher than each other. And it's like, I'm 100 feet. No, I'm 100 feet. And then they end up being like 400 feet tall. That's what we're doing with our brains. Um, so we're in this competition mode. But then we're like, wait a second, maybe we don't need to do this. We can start to collaborate through norms. Um, we can kind of agree that X is true and not necessarily compete as much on the on the big brain side. But then the issue with that is that what that then turns into is this kind of um, cheating system where people are cheating against the norms, people are trying to enforce the norms, people are signaling. And so then it again turns into this competition environment where people are um, competing around to get bigger and bigger brains through these norms and signaling. And then finally, if you want to compete in that game, that kind of norm signaling game, then a really good way to compete in it is to actually deceive yourself um, to kind of uh, to so that when you're signaling to people, you actually don't even know what your own motives are. <laughs> so you're like, this is what I'm trying to do or not do. Um, and so you become better at norm cheating, which is the main game that we're playing these days. So is that kind of the, the progression that as you see it? Yeah, that's roughly right for the first third of the book. I mean, the key point is a lot of our norms, our rules about what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do are expressed in terms of motives. It's okay if I hit you accidentally. It's not okay if I hit you on purpose. So why I hit you matters a lot in terms of my motives. So because of that, we're constantly trying to watch what we're doing and asking ourselves, can we come up with a good story about our motives that would keep us safe from accusations of violating norms? And so you, the person I'm talking to, is less the king or president of your mind who makes all the decisions, and you're more the press secretary. Your job is to make up good excuses for everything that happens, whether you know why it happened or not. 
And that's why you're focused on coming up with good stories for your motives, which is why you don't actually know your real motives. Now, so that's the first third of our book. And uh, that's reviewing a lot of other people's work in psychology, evolutionary psychology elsewhere. And it's not supposed to be terribly original. <laughs> and many people have noticed that uh, other people have said this stuff before. Uh, so what's really new here? And our claim about what's new is to apply this general idea to 10 different areas of life in the last two thirds of the book. So we go one by one through specific areas and we say, not only in principle should you expect us to sometimes be wrong about our motives, we are mot wrong a lot about a lot of motives in these 10 specific areas. And that's what we think is original and new about our book is to say just how far this goes. Mm, yeah, and I, I like that, but I do wanna say that the first part um, from a curatorial perspective, I thought that the first third of the book was very well done from just a, hey, uh, from from kind of outlining that that progression, though I do agree that the you know cross applying that knowledge about self um, you know deception around motives into these areas is is key. So in to talk about that for a bit, yeah, there's these ten different areas that um, Robin and his co-author Kevin Simler go into about how and and I think let's stay at the meta level here for just a bit, Robin, and what the way that you that you kind of present these 10 areas and also what you did, you just had a, um, a podcast with Sam Harris, um, in Denver where I was. And, um, in both that and in the book, you, you have this kind of meta reasoning where you say, Hey, here's a strange puzzle that exists in the day. Um, what is this, what, what is this puzzle and what is the answer to it? And almost always, it seems like, um, the answer to that can be derived from these kind of self-motive, self-deception kind of things. Uh, is that kind of that that metagame that you're playing there around the puzzles and then solving them? Yeah, if, if you say somebody's hiding their motives and they really have a different motives, you have a very difficult evidence problem <laughs> because obviously if they're hiding it well, the evidence is going to be weak and it's going to be hard to actually pin them down and show that they have a different motives. Otherwise, they aren't doing a very good job of hiding it. So how can we claim to know what people's hidden motives are, you might think. So the main approach here is not to look at any one person at any one moment and say, you at this moment, you have this hidden motive, <laughs> which you know it's, it's very difficult to do. We're stepping way back and we're looking at the average of human behavior over a wide range of contexts. And so we're looking at schools in general, we're looking at go doctors in general, we're looking at politics in general, charity, conversation in general, and stepping all the way back and looking at these as overall areas of human behavior, we're asking, well, what's the usual story that people most often give about this area? Mm -hmm. And then we're asking, well, what are some of the puzzles that don't make so much sense from that usual story, the overall puzzles, the patterns of behavior just averaging over all of human history even, and then ask, well, what would be some other motives for behavior that would make more sense of these puzzles? Yep. And we do typically are able to find other motives that make more sense of some of these key puzzles. And then we say, well, that must be going on a lot. I don't know if it goes on in any particular context, but it must be going on a lot. And then we're attributing that to most people most of the time saying, well, it must be happening a lot. Therefore, probably happening to you now <laughs> yeah. on average. And that's the, the form of our analysis is to just focus on these broad averages. So we're not trying to explain variation, why old people are different than young people or Americans are different from Chinese or anything like that. Uh, and we're not looking at the people who are weird and unusual. They could be different. And we're looking at the main overall uh, kind of motive, but it's not the only motive. So any area of human behavior that's big and complicated, it's going to be able to support an awful lot of motives in terms of any one case. Yeah. Uh, and we can't say that any one thing is the only motive or the motive. Thousands of motives are going to be relevant for almost any area. 
Oh, and the standard principle of excuses is uh, the excuse the dog ate my homework only works because sometimes dog ate, dogs eat homework. The dragon ate my homework doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the usual story is going to apply sometimes. And so that's the first thing that's going to come to people's mind. You say, you know, you say school isn't about learning. I remember learning something in school. And uh, we're saying, well, yes, it does happen sometimes. The point is it doesn't happen as much as you like to say. And there's this other thing that happens more uh, that you tend to neglect. Yeah. So I guess, so that makes sense. And I think that that is just a great way to kind of, that kind of system of thinking of like, oh, here's a, here's a thing that we all do. Here's the story that we tell. Oh, but that's kind of puzzling because that actually is not what the outcomes look like. What is the actual story here? Um, and what are our actual motives? I think that is a, a very strong progression. Were there times when you and Kevin were going through this that you looked at a field and you were like, oh, here's the story that we're telling. And then you like looked at some puzzles or whatever. And you're like, oh, actually, um, we're not self-deceiving ourselves here. This is totally actually in line. The story that we tell is the, the, the actual deep motives as well. Did that happen and come up in your research? Well, I recently did a conversations with Tyler and he asked me explicitly, what are the least signaling exactly. elements of human behavior? Exactly. And then I pick scratching your butt. Nice. So something you do that nobody's impressed by and nobody's endeared by, mm -hmm. but you still got to do it and you don't really want to call attention to it and you might prefer to do it in as much hiding as possible, then that's more plausibly something you do for other reasons. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, we're not saying signaling is the only reason anybody ever does anything. We're saying it's a big part of a lot of what we do. Mm -hmm. Would that be my initial pattern match from that is that most things that are kind of physical, um, uh, kind of gut level physical limbic system things might fall into that category. Something like sex or food where it's like, hey, I'm just really eating a bunch of delicious food right now. That, I'm, not, I'm not really signaling to anybody in that moment. It's just like, no, I just need it for food. Is that, is that Well, a not really. <laughs> so <laughs> it turns that. out that eating is pretty social. We really do prefer to eat socially around other people. And uh, we could much more efficiently eat uh, in private quickly but we go out of our way to, to share our food with other people. And the kinds of food we make is much more than we need for nutrition. So mm -hmm. there's clearly a lot more going on in food than uh, mere nutrition. Yeah, I think, I think that you're right that the times when you are social with it and you're signaling with it are definitely true. Um, I will say there are times, and for me personally, I do this kind of too much, where I just like eat spinach out of the bag, you know, where I treat myself as an input-output device or whatever. I'm not right, signaling right. to anybody Absolutely. there. Yeah. And again, the main point is, and we're not saying food isn't at all about nutrition. Yeah. And we'll, we're just and saying it's less than you like to admit. Totally. And my, I guess my, the thing that I was hypothesizing there was that um, both Tyler's question and my question about, hey, what are the things that are the least signaling? Um, and you gave the scratching your butt example. And then I then said, hmm, maybe it's the case that physical things in general um, are are in, are more on the less signaling side. Do, would you, is that your instinct as well? Or if you can think of other examples it, besides it, it scratching It might butt? be a little bit true. It's not that much true. <laughs> so so um, I, I think like an awful lot of our behavior, physical and otherwise, is taken – is done with an eye toward how it, the impression it gives to other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and that includes a lot of physical things we do. So certainly body language, we have a whole chapter on body language and, and a chapter on laughter. Those are both pretty physical things and unconscious. And they, they have hidden motives that are pretty strong. Um, even sex, you mentioned. You might think maybe, it, yeah. that's just uh, done for simple reasons. But in fact, we overlay an awful lot of complex symbolism onto sex. Yep. And we do it a lot less than you might think to if you just thought we liked it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's actually quite a puzzle there. 
Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely a lot more going on. Okay. Well, so let's let's push on this a little bit further then to say if um, my so so beyond scratching your butt, what would be the next um, top one for uh, least signaling actions that we do as humans? Well, you know, again, analogous things, picking your nose. Yep, yep, yep. I'm talking about in another category, in another category entirely. Is there another category like that? Well, defecating. Uh, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> So yeah, I think I very my few people claim. have an elegant way of defecating. Very few <laughs> yeah. people are known for their especially impressive defecating. <laughs> oh, you don't know me well, Robin. I... <laughs> so, you know, you got to give those as things you kind of got to do. Uh, I mean, obviously, breathing at some level is something you have to do, but people do often layer uh, other things on top of their breathing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like uh, when you talk about those things, those are all the things that I'm putting in my bucket of the physical bucket, which was kind of a bad word to say it. I think you could say it as well. It's just like things that are very low on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or it's like the things that we, I guess the way to say this is in, in coming from like the evolutionary perspective in your book, it's like, Hey, um, things that we did before we had big brains, those things are likely to be non-signaling. So that's maybe an okay way to think about it. To the extent we're still doing them the same way. The yes, more we exactly, modify them, exactly. the more plausible it is we've added more layers onto it. Like, yeah. we, we, you know, our ancestors definitely ate millions of years ago, but we eat differently. Yeah. And those different ways we eat probably are important. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so let's kind of flip the question then and say, so of the puzzles, so I was pushing for kind of things that didn't fall into the uh, the last half of your book um, around things that are like high signaling or whatever. Um, what about on the, when you were looking through, what are some of your, what was your favorite puzzle that you found in the book of those kind of 10 that you, you write about at the end? Which one is your kind of favorite to, to think about and talk about? Well, actually, I mean, the one that comes to mind is the one I didn't get to put in the book. Mm, yep, exactly. That was going to be <laughs> which, the next which would have been Perfect. Which would have been storytelling. Yeah. Because uh, I think we have a lot of hidden motives in storytelling, but uh, you know, time was short and we needed to finish, and I hadn't worked it out very well, so it got cut. Uh, so we didn't include that. But I would have liked to include that. I would have liked to include business meetings, mm. as like why, why do we have so many meetings, etc. Uh, law would have liked to include. I, I I teach law and economics, and there's a lot of hidden motives in laws that seem, uh, and so those are some of the things I would like to do in another book if I ever had the time yeah. to do that. So let's uh, the, the chapter in the go. book that's probably the most surprising to readers is the one about medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, that may be because in our society, it's one of the most sacred things we talk about, even higher than religion for most people. Yeah. Uh, but uh, laughter is probably most people's favorite, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, liking to just hear about the explanation. Yeah. Yeah, laughter is a very fascinating uh, topic that people don't understand very much, but it's kind of latent and underlying all the things that we do. So it's uh, I found that that topic fascinating. And medicine, as you say, is one where people read that and they go, they kind of push back naturally and go, no, 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 medicine is very important, you know. Um, and you're like, well, if you look at the data, da, da. and and you can tell kind of whether people are into seeing um, and, and learning about the elephant in the brain um, or whether they're not actually. So I guess I do want to stay stay on that storytelling piece. Of because I think that's a very powerful one and is one that possibly could be kind of self-referential. Tell me more about um, storytelling and how you think it might be a um, have lots of signaling motives in it. Well, it's always a sign of something being hidden when people say they do it for a reason that just sort of a blocking of thought like fun. Mm-hmm. If you say I do it for fun, that's really saying I don't want to think about why I do it. 
because my mind just tells me this is a good thing to do. Don't you don't need to think about why. <laughs> uh, you can just go ahead and do it. Yep, That's what fun really means. So uh, we think about sex being fun. We think about sports being fun, and we think about stories being fun. We just like them. And that's enough. Also think about laughter being fun, say. So it's clearly, you know, not enough to say that something's fun to explain why humans do it. Anything we put a lot of time and energy to must uh, have some other importance besides fun or fun can't be the explanation. And, and so storytelling, so that makes some sense. And geez, I feel like there's something interesting with storytelling and how there's when we are telling because because a lot of what you're saying here is like hey here's this here's the classic story we tell about medicine you know more medicine equals more help um and so that's why we do it um and as we're saying and i guess it's maybe kind of connected to your conversational um one in the book where it's like there's something weird about when someone has a motive to story tell um yeah and they're saying oh like for you example maybe in this book where you're like oh i'm just trying to i'm just trying to you know, write this book or to storytell in this book in order to kind of help everybody in the world to learn about their elephant in the brain. But uh, it's kind of this, do you see what I'm kind of pushing out with this weird, like self-referential thing by, by telling the story? Right. It's kind of like, so, are you actually? So, so, so the word story has different uh, connotations depending on how narrowly or broadly yeah. you take the term. And at a broad level, it's sort of any sort of explanation or yeah. any sort of discussion. <laughs> the narrower definition would be, say, a fictional account. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that would be what I'd focus more to start with. Uh, mm. What is the point of a fictional account? Uh, if you ask people what fiction is for, they might tell you it's fun. If you press them further, they say, well, it helps you with empathy so you can yeah. see inside the minds of others. It helps you to sort of imagine other situations other than the ones you'll experience personally and see what might happen in those situations. And these just don't work very well <laughs> because actually stories are not very representative of real situations and they're not really very accurate. That is, systematically things happen in stories that wouldn't happen in the real world. Uh, in stories, people uh, know their motives much better than real people do. Their actions are much better predicted from their motives. They're more willing to have conflict. Uh, the conflict more ends up like uh, being correlated between some sort of good and evil side. Mm -hmm. The good is highly, all the good features are all on one side and all the bad features on another side. And that almost never happens in reality. Yeah. And so we can see a lot of these features of storytelling that don't fit with the simple, or just teaching you about the world by going through some examples you might not experience personally. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's something deep here around, or someone like Jordan Peterson might make the claim that these stories are, um, are kind of stories that we've held throughout our kind of history as humanity, and therefore storytelling is a way for us to kind of connect to kind of these deeper uh, values and like ethical frameworks that we can use to kind of move forward. Um, that, yeah, I think that might be a claim for another motive for why we storytell. So I actually have a blog post that just came out a day or two ago mm -hmm. about storytelling, and, and I quoted this new Nature's Communication article, uh, which was studying storytelling and foragers. And their story is the one that I've been telling for many years, which is uh, why I liked it. <laughs> but uh, basically that stories are mainly there for norm affirmation. Hmm. That is, uh, we share norms, the norms our societies apply. And by telling stories and liking them, we say that we approve of the norms. And we also use this as a way to figure out what everybody else thinks the norms are. So we figure out what behavior is approved, what behavior is disapproved. In the story, of course, disapproved behavior is punished and approved behavior is rewarded. That's not how it usually happens in real life quite so much. But it's we'd rather have these stories that exaggerate that just so that we can all show our support for the norms. Mm. And so 
uh, people who want to influence the norms of society are often especially eager to influence the stories we tell in order to uh, change the norms. And in this paper, not only did they find that uh, foragers who had better storytellers were more cooperative with each other, mm -hmm. uh, they found that the storytellers uh, got a lot of rewards for it, actually. They were uh, very desired associates, uh, as much as a kin or as somebody who brought in a lot of food. And so that suggests that foragers gained a lot of benefits out of having good storytellers who could who could really communicate the norms in a way that people found it compelling to, uh, you know, sign on to. Yeah. And I think that's what we're doing with our stories a lot in terms of fictional stories. It's it's a hidden motive because it's not what we'd like to think we're doing <laughs> with our stories. Uh, that is, we'd like to think that we're just enjoying the fact that uh, there's a, you know, good and bad in the story and that we are identifying with one side. So, so for example, in a war movie, uh, the the viewer is usually persuaded that if they were in that situation, even though it would be difficult, they would do the right thing. Yeah, they will charge that hill. They would save their 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 buddy. Uh, they would expose the the cheating commander, whatever it is, because uh, that would be the right thing to do. And so you present the scenario where there's a right and a wrong thing to do, and the hero has a choice. The hero usually makes the right choice. Uh, eventually, and you can believe that you would make the right choice too, and you can affirm to yourself and the people around you that you share the norms that the movie is pro projecting because you would agree what the right thing to do is and who the people who should be rewarded and punished in that scenario are. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I like that. It's essentially, um, as you say in your book, it's kind of re. We have these meta norms, and that meta norm is to. Um, to make sure that you're rewarding or punishing about the norms. Um, and so something like storytelling, it's not about, oh, it's just fun. It's not about if you kind of dive deeper and you say, well, what is it really about? Oh, it's about empathizing and empathy. It's like, it's not about any of those things. It's about um, making sure that we are um, upholding our meta norms in various right. good ways. So, yeah. so they're much like a sermon, literally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, one of the functions sermons has for religious people is you all go and hear the sermon together and you all the sermon will tell you some things are right and some things are wrong. Yeah. And you've all sat there and nodded with approval <laughs> and yep. you all know that you've done that. And so yep. now you all know what the rules are yep. and you all know that, you know, you have created more common knowledge about what the rules are yep. that you all approve of them. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I like that. Well, um, I will be in, I will be ready for your next, um, and this is actually something that, that you were thinking about, which was, um, and you, you just have a bunch, there's a big list here, um, where, I mean, so you guys are making this claim, um, in your book about like, Hey, we have all these, you know, we self-deceive ourselves a lot and you call it the elephant in the brain, just like the elephant in the room where it's like, no one actually wants to talk about us self-deceiving ourselves on the regular. Um, and you thought that when you presented this to the world that people would be like, oh, totally agree. Let's get behind it and start researching these more or that people would say, oh, totally disagree. And uh, let's like push back in various ways. But actually that hasn't happened that much. Um, so I guess... Tell me your thoughts on maybe why you think that hasn't happened, and um, if you wanted to give people a call to action after reading your book um, to kind of maybe explore more categories or something, what, what would the call to action be? So in many other areas of life, even say physics or computer science, uh, you know, engineering of various sorts, and in some areas of social science, you have a sense for some results being kind of a small <laughs> minor correction and other results being big, uh, you know, claiming that there's a big change in how you should see things. Now, uh, small results can more often be believed, I guess. They're, it's easier to put a solid set of evidence to convince you of a small result. You, you should have more doubts and questions about a big result. But uh, if the big result seems plausible, of course, you should be more interested in the big result. It, it will say some more things about the world. 
And this is roughly true. And, you know, if you have a small result about some particular chemical, that's a minor result uh, in physical science. But, you know, the recent results about maybe we're seeing uh, dark matter in the 100 million years after the universe was formed, that's like a big result. It's, we're not very sure of it, but hey, if it's, if it's important, it would be really big. Mm. And uh, you would think that would be true in uh, social science as well. <laughs> a minor correction to our views about human behavior would be a ho-hum sort of, okay, maybe. And uh, a big thing that changed a lot of your views, that, well, that would be really important. Of course, you should question it. You should wonder how well they could have shown that and, and how well, well everybody else could have missed it. <laughs> Uh, and so you shouldn't immediately believe a claim about a big result, but you should be interested in it. And it seems to me that uh, the t the claims we're making in this book are pretty obviously big. They're, they're not tiny claims. They're, they're not small corrections. We're, we're saying uh, you're missing just a big fraction of your life. You're just wrong about why you're doing things. And so it seems to me that the reaction should either be, wow, that's, that's a big deal. Let's uh, explore that further. Or it should be, well, that would be great if it was true, but you're crazy. That's wrong. <laughs> you couldn't possibly be showing that, and, and here's why. Or even, I, I'm not even going to bother to tell you why, because you're just not worthy bothering to interact with. <laughs> you, you, you're not, you, aren't, you don't have a high enough status to even be worth considering on this topic. Uh, I can imagine that sort of result. Uh, but in fact, I think people mostly like assimilate it and acknowledge it and then change the subject. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. And in a sense, that's a sign of, of what our theory would predict. It's the elephant yep. in the brain. It's the thing that's there. It's big, and you don't really want to talk about it. Yep. And so you'd rather change the subject as soon as you could. And it's related to the reason why I, I would want this book to be written and why I wish I would have known this at the beginning of my career. Mm -hmm. So uh, the way I tell the story is uh, I used to be in physics and computer science. And in those areas, uh, people were eager for innovations and innovation was hard to find. And then I started looking at social science and I noticed there were large innovations that were possible. And, mm -hmm. and that was really exciting to me. And that's why I switched to social science. And it was only later that I realized that the reason it was so easy to find large improvements is that we almost never adopt them. <laughs> uh, and that's a puzzle. Why are we so uninterested in these big improvements? And um, my explanation is, uh, in part, it's because we kind of know that we're not being honest about our motives. So we talk about schools if it's about learning the material, Scholars work out better ways to learn the material at school and present them to the world. The world yawns and isn't interested, and so we don't actually adopt those ways. And so we've known better ways to learn the material at school for many decades, and we still haven't adopted them. Schools have just not changed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that level of disinterest is in part because we know we're not really being honest there, and we'd rather not talk about it, so we'd rather look away. And so again, um, that's what I would like to encourage people to do, I, although I understand it's hard, is to either deny our claims and tell us why or accept the claims and accept the implication that hey this is big and there's a lot more that we haven't covered so we went through 10 areas of life here there easily is another 20 or more areas of life we could go through and this should be opening up a new research area where we go through and discover our hidden motives in lots more areas of life yep. and then we could do a lot more with that but Emotionally, you should realize your first reaction is probably to like look the other way, yep. to to try to change the subject, to say, yeah, I guess so, but what's the point? And you know, I actually find it amazing that that people often ask, okay, so we're wrong most of the time about why we do things. Why why is this important? Why should we know this? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the same sort of people who would find it fascinating that you found an ancient civilization's mound in northern Iowa and that we didn't quite realize there were twice as many mounds as we thought or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, and yeah. if you say, well, okay, how are you going to use that exactly? They yeah. look at you as if, like, why would you ask that question? Isn't it just fascinating <laughs> that there's a mound yeah. that we thought of in northern yeah. Iowa? Yeah, that's and so funny. I think there's just <laughs> there's an amazing disconnect in terms of how important different topics are. If yeah. you if you look at sort of people's tolerance for minutia in history, it's amazingly deep. <laughs> They're willing to go into great fine detail in history and, and learning about a slight change in what they thought in history. If you ask, yes, but what are you going to do with that? They say, well, you know, history in general is useful, and those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. And it's like a slogan that isn't really very connected to, okay, but really this minutia is going to make a difference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And versus when you say, hey, it turns out that whenever anybody asks a why question, that 90% of the time it's actually false. <laughs> no, everybody's like, okay, you know, like, Seems like a moderately interesting book. Well, that's to say, so if you're a person listening to this, um, you should, I, I, and I do think this, I mean, in, in the 10 chapters um, that they have at the end, uh, like each of those can be expanded into a big book. And actually this book, Brian Kaplan, The Case Against Education, um, I haven't actually read it yet, but as far as I understand, it's essentially an expanded version of um, Robin and Kevin's um, education chapter. E well, more even, correctly, okay. ours is a contracted version of his book. Oh, nice. So bet, to get better. credit, we're nice, credited nice, nice. too. I mean, good, good, good. Okay, we, good. we are cribbing off his book as opposed to the other way around. Okay, great. Um, so yours is the Cliff Notes version of his book. And if you're a person in the space, you can either Cliff Notes a different book that shows these kind of strange motives, or you can um, take one of the existing motive sets, uh, those final 10 motive sets uh, that Robin showed, um, and expand them into a bigger book. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, Augur, Golem, and many more. And this is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to create an account or share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard-earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit Shapeshift.io, choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy. So with that, Robin, let's talk about actually um, uh, moving towards better signals. You have this, uh, you wrote a piece recently in January about moving towards better signals. And something, this is something that I think about a lot. I'm like relatively connected with the like effective altruist mindset and community. And uh, people talk about virtue signaling over there. And we also have stuff like the giving what we can pledge, which is where you kind of give 10% of your um, income to uh, effective charities um, as you live in life. And you can do that because you don't get happier after about, you know, 4,000 bucks a month. Um, you don't get happier when you get more money. So for me personally, I've been trying to take some of these signaling things like virtue signaling and turn them into kind of long-term signaling um, as with things like the giving what we can pledge and various kind of pledges that you can take such that you can show over a long period of time that you're not just doing this for signaling purposes to signal that you're a good actor, but rather you're doing this over the long term to try to actually create good change in the world. Um, is that... Do you think about, like, how do you think about short-term versus long-term signaling? Um, and, and will that actually make for kind of these better signals? Okay, there's a lot to talk about here. So just 
uh, first, just a correction. Uh, yes, it yes, looks yes. like happiness continues to increase with wealth uh, without limit. It's just more of a logarithmic dependence. So it's, it's you, you, have to you have to double your wealth each time to get the same increment of happiness. And so it keeps being harder to double your wealth, of course. But it, it looks like there is no saturation. I would. Uh, uh, I, uh, that might be true, though. The graphs that I know after that, after I think it's about $80,000, at some point it starts to go a little bit down. Yeah. People shared graphs like that for a while, but the better <laughs> research has said, showed that that's not true. So okay. I'll just have to we'll, tell you. We'll go back and forth you on more, that. If you do a more careful analysis, okay. you'll find that it's it's a logarithmic dependence. If you're trying to fit a linear thing, you might say think it runs out or yeah. something like that. But it, but it, it does seem to steadily increase. Well, if nothing else, uh, it's logarithmic. But yes, that, that sounds good. Job. Thank you for that correction. Okay. <laughs> and so then uh, also we can focus on generally how to have better signals. Well, we could also focus more particularly on charities. So so we probably better to start with the more specific and then work nice. our way up to yep. general. And so you're focused on charity. And we talk in our book about how we like to pretend that charity is about helping people and that charity is in fact socially more about showing that you have a certain kind of empathy, uh, an, an emotional vulnerability to people around you in need. Mm -hmm. uh, people around you want to see that you have that vulnerability. And so if you are too calculating about your charity and too emotionally distant, uh, people won't be as impressed from the point of view of what they want to get out of charity from you. You might help the world more, but you will less endear yourself to them yeah. through and, your charity. And this is like the effective altruist thing where it's like if I give to my community around me, uh, that feels really good. But if I like do use like give directly and just give to some people, some abstracted people that we don't even know about, even though if it's much more effective, it doesn't have that same kind of signaling power. Right. So this is a constant tension. And uh, you, you really should think about it carefully. So we have these ideals and then we have our actual lower motive. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are two basic responses to noticing there's a difference. <laughs> One is to try to redouble your efforts to reaffirm your high motives and squash your behavior that seems to be achieving lower motives. Mm -hmm. And another is to back off and lower your standards so that your lower motives are more okay. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I see many sort of uh, smart, nerdy people as focused on the first strategy. Mm -hmm. They would really like to reaffirm their uh, commitment to their high ideals that they've set in words, and they are wondering how to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's in a sense what effective altruists are, mm -hmm. because we all say we're trying to help people, and they say, well, I'm gonna make sure I really help people, even if it comes at the expense of these personal signals. Yeah. Um, but then they often have trouble actually doing what they think they should do. Mm. And then they ask themselves, you know, why do I have so much trouble doing what I think I should do? And of course, one straightforward explanation is because you don't really want to do this thing. You, yeah. you think you ought to do the thing that helps the world the most, but you, like the rest of us, would actually like to be liked by people, including, you know, having them think you have the right kind of empathy. Mm -hmm. And uh, this applies all the way down the line. You could say, well, People talk about school as if it's learning the material. Most people don't seem to learn much material and they're just trying to show off, but I'm gonna make sure I really learn a lot of material. Mm -hmm. And that, that is a possible response, but you could ask, well, yeah, but why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why is it so important to learn more material exactly? Uh, or, or you could say, you know, most people go to the doctor, but they don't that much care about health. I'm gonna make sure I care a lot about health. I'm gonna pay attention to color health, even if I don't show that I care about people, even if I don't let them show that I care about me, because I'm gonna do the thing that I say I've been doing. So that's a really strong commitment to like doubling down on the words we've been saying uh, at the expense of the thing we've all actually been doing and kind of know that we're doing. And it's not obviously a winning strategy. Mm -hmm. 
to just be the one who's most sincere. In fact, you're often vulnerable to being the holier than thou sort of people. I mean, religion, this is how it plays out. I mean, most of us are somewhat, most people are somewhat religious and they're also somewhat hypocritical about the religion. And then there are some people in religion who insist on being very uh, sincere about it and then insist on holding everybody to the words that they say. Yeah. And then other people resent those people <laughs> and call them holier than thou and also like Anytime you can find any way in which they're not living up to their own ideals, point it out and calling them hypocrites because, you know, they're embarrassing you. So you're trying to retaliate to embarrass them. And so that's the kind of way people respond to you. If, if you stand up and you say, you're all hypocrites, but I'm going to do the thing we all say yeah. that we all been trying to do. And I'm better than you, basically. Yeah. Uh, so you, you just have to pause and think about whether that's your priority. <laughs> totally. But if you say, no, my priority is really to be altruistic. Uh, I'm really going to try to do that even if it hurts me socially. Okay. I mean, that's what you want. Mm -hmm. People vary. Our theory is about the average, the typical behavior. It, we, we don't deny there isn't variation. And some of the variation is no doubt that some people actually believe in these ideals more than others. Mm -hmm. Some people really like school and want to learn more material. That's what they're into. It's just not the average person. Yeah, yeah. And to make sure you take that pause and to, to check between your desired outcome versus those kind of uh, low motives that you might actually have. So I guess, and I, to go more specifically here, what do you think this idea around like signaling as as pledges, um, so or like long-term signaling as these kind of pledges, and that as a way to kind of maybe um, double down and reaffirm on that kind of those those high standards or whatever. Do you like? How do you think about time within kind of signaling? Well, it's it's striking that many young people feel idealistic and don't trust the older version themselves mm -hmm. to keep up that feeling. <laughs> So there are many young people who are trying to commit their older version to something they don't think their older version actually wants. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you could also call this exploitation. <laughs> if you thought of this future version as a separate creature yes, with yes. its own rights, you yes. could think, well, you're trying to enslave this person. You're yes, trying to yep. take over their resources and make sure you can spend the resources they might otherwise be able to spend. Exactly. And, and future you self is going to be like, what the hell? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. But if you, you, if you find a way to commit your future self, the future yes, self exactly. may regret it, but they may be stuck. Yes. They may not be able to get out of your commitment. And obviously one way to commit is, is to just talk really loudly mm -hmm. and be a braggart such that uh, people were just eager to take you down by showing that you haven't lived up to your word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you knowing that will tempt you not to, you know, to keep your word. Uh, so that's certainly one way people try to commit. And then there are financial ways you could commit. You, you could l sign a contract uh, or you could post a bond that you would forfeit if you didn't keep your word. Those are all ways you could try to commit. Uh, and you could, of course, join a community which shares uh, norms in this direction, and then you will be embarrassed in that community if you don't follow that lead. So we have many ways to weekly commit, at least. And if you are worried about your future self not agreeing with you, you can use those ways to sort of basically take from this future self to give to yourself to let yourself choose more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think there's also, I think there's also kind of powerful, if you think about signaling, sometimes it's a way to, people will virtue signal, but will not actually be doing virtuous things or what have you. I think that pledges are maybe a way to actually push through the pure signaling side of virtue and to actually make it long-term. In any case, um, let's transition to one final thing on elephant in the brain, which is 
um, this idea of um, so there's this article um, called "Weaponized Sacredness." Um, well, from, wait, before we get to sorry, that, we, we were we were going to talk about general. Oh, we um, could go to that. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, let's do it. So, yeah. so, so I Todd, we first we should talk about more great. specific thing, which was the 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 uh, charity. Yes, great. But the more general point is, uh, we spend a lot of time and effort signaling how could we make that better. Yes. And so there's two straightforward ways to make it better. Um, one is to just focus on signals that have what we call positive externalities that help other people rather than hurt them. So you you can signal via violence, for, you know, you could pick fights and win them, and that would be a way to show off. It would just have a lot of harm to other people, uh, and yourself even because of these fights. Or you could pick ways to show off that help other people. And innovation and charity are two big examples of this. Yep. These are both ways that uh, by showing off uh, in, indirectly, you're helping other people. So that's great. Uh, but I think that's not even as important as, as another more fundamental point, which is today when we signal, or anytime when we signal, we're mainly focused on doing something that looks good to a particular kind of audience, and everything depends on what that audience knows. So for example, uh, today we push people to get medicine, and we help pay for their medicine, uh, in substantial part to show that we care about them. We don't actually know very much which kinds of medicine help, but they don't know how much kind of medicine helps, and our audience doesn't know which kind of medicine helps. So mm -hmm. we don't actually need to pay that much attention to which kind of medicine helps because our audience don't know that either. They just will give us credit for being a caring person as long as we push the usual sort of medicine that you're supposed to push. Now, the more the audience knew about which kind of medicines help, so if you were pushing your, your grandma to, to get something and the audience knew that that was hurting your grandma, well, they wouldn't give you so much credit for <laughs> yeah. helping grandma because they say you're torturing grandma. You're paying money to torture grandma. What's, what's with that? You think we should think you care about grandma? So the more the audience knew about what helped or hurt, the more you would be pushed to know as well so that you uh, would send the signals that would be properly impressive. Yeah. So there's a huge benefit in general from people focusing on an audience who knows more about politics, about medicine, about charity, uh, you know, just same in charity. People get credit for being generous by giving to charities, even if the charity doesn't actually help, as long as the audience doesn't know that charity doesn't actually help. Mm -hmm. So the more that we could make audiences know, uh, the the better we would all be doing in, in signals we send. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously one general approach is just to make every, everybody know more about everything, which is pretty hard and expensive. Yeah. <laughs> or we could have people focus their signaling on... Uh, things that are like a smaller number of bigger signals that will be looked at more carefully. Yeah. So, so today when you, you know, wait a tweet and you get, you know, a few hundred likes, <coughs> each, each of those likes is not very well thought through. Totally. And, and they they're all they have the same weight as carefully. well, generally. Right. Yep. Uh, but if you are, say, trying to win a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer Prize or something, uh, the committee there is going to be really looking carefully at what you've done. Mm -hmm. So efforts to signal in that way are, are signaling to an audience that's paying a lot of attention and therefore knows a lot more about whether something's more effective or not. So the more that we could get people to show off via a fewer larger signals, like that they put a lot more effort into and that are judged a lot more carefully, the more that on average, the audiences of our signals would know more about them and therefore we would try to be more careful. And it also might help if somehow we could focus more on elites uh, when we were signaling rather than signaling to the average person. So what would Jesus do is, is a good intuition here. Mm -hmm. Not ask like, what would the average tweet liker like, mm -hmm. but think of your most ideal hero and ask what would impress them. Mm -hmm. 
the more you can get yourself and other people into this mindset of impressing the most informed person and then really focusing on uh, celebrating praise or uh, from those most informed people, the more we might be putting our efforts into doing impressive things that will be impressive on reflection by someone who actually knew about it and could think about it for a while. Yeah. I like this. I think that there's a, I like it because it aligns with the work that I do. <laughs> and what, what I mean by that is there's a, um, do you know, Patreon? Uh, the, no, uh, I've so, heard of it, but I haven't looked at it much. So Patreon is a peer to peer kind of funding platform where I, for this podcast, actually people support me on Patreon. So instead of being, um, primarily supported by sponsors, um, or by just having it out there in the world a bunch and being supported by, um, like YouTube ads or whatever, instead, people support me on Patreon um, in this peer-to-peer kind of funding way. So that's what Patreon is, and I think Patreon is actually a good example of what you're talking about, which is essentially, for me, I'm trying to signal within the, like, you know, smart blockchain folks ecosystem to say, hey, um, I'm doing really good work here. And for me, when I optimize for things, I optimize for essentially Patreon subscribers, for people who are into it enough that they love it and are willing to actually then support me. I optimize for that instead of optimizing for something like people giving me five stars on iTunes or whatever. Um, so I think that that's, is that an example of kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. And, and in fact, it, makes me realize something I hadn't thought so much about, which was that Mm -hmm. uh, trying to be impressive by soliciting money actually has the nice effect that people giving out money are a lot more careful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Than people who give out lights on Twitter. Exactly. They're really thinking about it more carefully. Exactly. And that's, that's actually in this kind of overlaps with various kind of entrepreneurship startup mindsets where you're trying to find early adopters and a way to find an early adopter is to say, Hey, uh, I know I'm at the beginning here or whatever, but like, this, if you think, if you're into the vision enough, if you're in depth within this field enough, then you're actually going to pay me at the beginning, even though not that many other people are doing it or whatever. Um, so that's kind of uh, yeah, money as a is a can be a very powerful signal because it's still a scarce thing. Um, do you do you feel? Can we can we go to my my final question? Here? Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> thank, you're in thank you. For, oh, well, but thank you for for bringing us back to that. That was fun. Um, so this. Final one is on weaponized this thing called weaponized sacredness um, by Sarah at Ribbon Farm. Do you know if have you read that article by the way? I don't think I have. No. Okay, sweet. So it's it's this idea that we have these sacred things and. Um, we essentially show something as sacred. So let's say like the nation state is sacred. Um, and then we're like, this is true. And then everybody has to kind of signal towards it and say, hey, this is a sacred thing. We all love this thing. And it's essentially what she calls preference falsification, where you say, oh, I prefer to be in a state here. But then let's say a revolution happens. Um, and then when the revolution happens, everybody goes, oh, God, I better not signal towards the state now. I better signal towards um, the revolution, you know? And so the revolution becomes the sacred idea. And so you essentially then do a re-loop of preference falsification there. Um, And so her point is about how we essentially do this preference falsification um, thing over time based off of what everybody else believes. And it's both helpful because it helps us coordinate because we can kind of come together, even though we all might be signaling in these weird ways and we don't have these deep preferences, it allows us to kind of come together and work on things together. But it's also bad and allows us to discoordinate because we're not actually showing our true preferences or signals um, because we've been forced to not show them uh, through preference falsification. So that I see that, and I guess I'd just like to get your take here. I think that her article is something around essentially, um, 
you know, something like preference falsification or weaponized sacredness is kind of talking about like an external um, elephant in the brain where it's like society tells us to um, falsify these preferences while something like elephant in the brain, I feel like has some of that external, but also might be talking more about from like the internal biological perspective. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on this and how those things might interrelate? Well, I think it's closely related to something I called automatic norms in a blog post uh, a month or two ago. Um, there, there are some topics where uh, they're supposed to be so obviously good or so obviously bad mm -hmm. that you're not supposed to need to think about it much. Mm -hmm. And you, therefore, you're not supposed to question it much. They're, they're questioning it would be a big suspicious mark because what what is there to question? Isn't it so obvious? Yeah. And so in a case like that, we are really pushed to all just immediately agree with whatever the surface indication is without giving it much thought. Mm -hmm. And th that's true for many sacred things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so I had this project back in 2003 called the policy analysis market. And uh, there was these two senators who in front of Congress had a press conference where they declared that our project was uh, having betting markets on death. Yeah. And uh, that in most people's minds is a norm violation. That is uh, betting on death is just, a thing you shouldn't do. Yeah. Now, because it was a norm violation, uh, that means that uh, if there's an accusation of a norm violation, it's not okay to think about it and to ask for time to study it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everybody immediately must have a response. Yeah, exactly. And so that's in a political situation there, the political world was was challenged to have an immediate response. Yeah. And they said, here's this $1 million project <laughs> out there that we claim is violating a norm. Are you for it or against it? Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, if it was a billion dollar project in your state, you might think about whether to defend it. If it's a million dollar project anywhere, you just like this. The obvious safe thing is to repudiate it. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why, uh, you know, that sort of political move can work. And then you end up with really shallow evaluations of things when you're pushed in this mode of uh, a norm violation. And so the intuition is that norms are supposed to be obvious. Now, in fact, they aren't obvious. They can be complicated and be hard to apply them. But the, the intuition is the norms are supposed to be obvious. And so anybody who's pretending to need to think about it is really just trying to avoid mm -hmm. following the norm, which, which case they don't really support the norm very well. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you can you know, tag them yeah. as not a good person. Yeah. And so because of this expectation that, that you must immediately respond to a norm violation accusation uh, because it shouldn't need any thought, then you get a lot of these really shallow reactions that you know have a lot of hurting basically where we everybody does the same thing quickly because they can't think about it yeah. and that's many sort of sacred topics are like that yeah. uh, philip tetlock has this uh you know sacred trade-off <laughs> uh papers where he says you know you, you imagine a hospital administrator and he's thinking of cutting costs to, uh because which might hurt some patients but hey he's got a budget problem and then people think he's a terrible person and it turns out they also think he's a terrible person if he thinks about it for a while and then makes the right decision. Because <laughs> <laughs> he shouldn't need to think about it. It should just be an immediate decision. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's more the problem here. It's less that there's some pressure to, you know, show <coughs> your morals through your actions. I mean, you know, of course we have to have that sort of pressure. Yeah. Uh, we want to be able to call people to account for being immoral. Uh, it's the pressure to not think about it, yes. to not evaluate it, to have an immediate reaction. That's, in a sense, the real problem, and that's related to the problem I talked about. Is the the, the audience for our signals isn't thinking carefully enough about our signals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I feel like there's a, and that's I think something that we will find as a society more and more is things that are determined as sacred 
by polarized folks um, means that whenever even if you just take a little moment to question it, uh, then it's like, oh my God, you're questioning this? And, and purely the act of que- – it's really sad when you can't do the act of questioning. Yeah, so, so if somebody says, uh, you know, are you a racist? And you say, and you say well, what do you mean by racism? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, like, you're a racist. That's yeah. the wrong answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Only a racist would be trying to clarify what <laughs> the word racist is. Exactly. Yeah, that's going to be tough. Uh, well, we'll hope we'll make it through. Um, do you want to switch to – do you have 10 more minutes, by the way? Of course. Okay, sweet. So we're going to talk just for a, a hot sec about um, Ethereum and blockchain. Um, so I, I did. I, I very much enjoy diving into the human systems side of things and understanding how we as people, um, why, how our behavior, how our, our structures um, influence our behavior. Um, but now we're going to transition away just to a, a quick sec for um, to the Ethereum and blockchain ecosystem. And uh, Robin was actually at, um, he was on some panels and was a judge and was this, and spoke about Elephant in the Brain at ETH. Denver, this event that I co-organized, um, and Robin, thank you for coming to it. Um, <laughs> and I guess I have kind of two high-level questions here. The first is, what are your? Let's actually start with the specific one, which is for you. Um, you're you're an economist by trade, and um, a big part of the ecosystem is kind of doing economic like reverse game theory aka mechanism design um to kind of determine incentive sets for people to make sure that when we all those incentive sets happen that we get the outcomes that we want um and so tell me a little bit more about kind of the academic side of mechanism design and what current blockchain builders and incentive crypto economic folks can learn from mechanism design from the academic perspective well, so I got my PhD back in uh, 1997 uh, and that uh, was uh, from Caltech and my thesis advisor, John Ledger, uh, specialized in mechanism design. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot about mechanism design back mm-hmm. then. And uh, I, I've had you know recent exposure to the blockchain world and seeing a lot of activity there. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, the, the, the highest level thing that's happened is that I've made these commitments in the last few years to pursue these books and to see them through to marketing. And so while opportunities have shown up during that time to focus more on blockchain mechanism design, I, I've not been able to really do much of that because of these prior commitments. So yep. that's just a problem with commitments. Yep, yep. Uh, if you if you make a commitment to how you're going to spend your time, you are losing the option yes. uh, to change your mind about what you do uh, based on things that might appear. So yep. I have mostly been losing out and not really you know, enjoying much time thinking about blockchain things because I've made these commitments to do these books. Yep. Um, and, you know, ex ante, that was a reasonable thing to do. Ex post, it might have been a mistake, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I did uh, participate in uh, your event this, uh, I guess, two weeks ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed, you know, hanging around nerds more <laughs> than I usually get to, which is uh, fun and, and to see that. Um, I... I see some things, and but of course I'm not seeing remotely as much as people involved in the system would see. Uh, I can comment on the things I do see, and I can, you know, say a few things that might be useful. But again, you know, I'm more on the outside. Yeah, I wish is. I could. I wish I could be more on the inside, you know, <laughs> getting involved. But of course, this stuff is happening really fast too. Yeah. Yep. So, um, you know, it's not enough to just do a little bit on the side. This is kind of a thing where you need to jump in yep. a lot, or or don't bother. Yep if it's happening as fast as it is, which it seems to be. So, um, you know, one obvious comment, which I made in, uh, you know, on, on a panel, I guess, uh, at the event, was that, uh, you know, this this whole space 
doesn't win in the end unless it manages to connect with some stream of customers outside the space. Yeah. It needs a stream of revenue from those customers. You know, recently it's been getting a stream of revenue from investors and it's getting so much investor revenue that the people running these things mainly just need to produce a white paper and some initial software and that's what it takes to impress the investors. And so these software, you know, design-oriented people are not paying that much attention to all the other things you need to pay attention to to make a viable business that actually connects to final customers, mm-hmm. i.e., you know, marketing and, and products, <laughs> talking to customers and finding out what their problems are and that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, it, I, I wasn't very impressed by any of the, you know, actual products trying to reach final customers. Yeah, totally. <laughs> most totally. of the most of the things I was most impressed by were things internal things, tools to help other people in the space. Yes, definitely. And so that's a problem, uh, you know, and it needs to be solved eventually or the whole thing fails. Yeah. Um, another thing I can say is that uh, economists have, have a different, you know, have had a different kind of mechanism design, but it has similar features and similar problems, hmm. which is related to what I just said. Uh, economists uh, can do a theory paper on a mechanism where they prove a theorem about a mechanism. They're, it's okay to do a lab experiment on a mechanism and maybe even okay to do a field experiment as long as it's a very structured field experiment such that you can use nice statistics on it. Yep. Uh, when you get farther away in terms of like figuring out how to adapt a mechanism to the complexities of a real organization, economists stop and drop the ball because they can't get much academic credit for that. And the rest of the world isn't that eager to do that. So that's where ball gets dropped. So we've got a lot of mechanisms that have been worked out in theory and in lab experiments, but haven't been taken much farther because there's not much incentive for the academics to do that. And there's not much incentive for the rest of the world to do that. And that's so, you know, if you want to help the world, don't go doing abstract theory or abstract lab experiments, like take the things that have been shown to partially work and take them in the world and try to make them really work. And what that means literally is, uh, you know, the real world is a complicated place, and so there's a lot of lot of adaptation that's required to map any <coughs> abstract mechanism into the details of a particular context and organization. Yeah. And so there's you have to search in the space of those details, of those different ways you could arrange things to see what works and what the problems are. And there's really no escaping trying things out, talking to people, seeing what they don't like, seeing what they do like, or, and revising, repeat. And that's the sort of thing that needs to happen, and economists have neglected that including myself, because I'm an academic too. So in the world of prediction markets, which is the mechanism where I put the most work, uh, I'm eager to help organizations do that, but it's actually hard to find ones willing to do that. And uh, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, So similarly in blockchain, it's a somewhat different space in that instead of being professors, they are, you know, people in companies. And instead of right, publishing journal articles, they publish working papers. <laughs> and uh, instead of getting salary, they get IPO coins, mm-hmm. you know, ICO you know, revenue. But still, you know, like academics, their main incentives are to gain fame and reputation within the world of people who are uh, doing these abstract working papers and, and software demos. And they just have much less incentive to like, do all the other stuff you need to do to make a system really work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a shame because that means you'll have lots of great abstract mechanisms and you may not actually get much final revenue yeah. connecting to customers. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, academics can keep with their jobs indefinitely, even if they never produce any real effect on the world because people are willing to just go to them to have, send their students to them and that sort of thing because they have this long-term established position. Uh, blockchain doesn't have such a long-term established position. Mm-hmm. Uh, if blockchain, you know, runs out of their ICO revenue and they 
don't actually connect with customers, they are at much more risk of going away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is also, and both these kind of reflect one another, which is that we need to, within the space, um, always ask yourself how much you are signaling to the space that you are a smart person who is doing cool uh, crypto economic game theory stuff or whatever, how much are you doing that versus um, how much are you actually connecting to customers and people um, outside the space um, and or building infrastructure that will then allow for that to happen. Right. Um, I mean, I hesitate to say a trite thing that almost every software person should know, but it is like the relevant thing to say, Mm, which is the, uh, the root of all software evil is premature optimization. Uh, that is if you have a large system with many parts, uh, and you think, you know, where the problems are and you go optimize those parts, uh, unless you've actually had some feedback from an actual like use of it, you're probably wrong Mm -hmm. about where the main problems are. And so you don't know which parts to work on and which parts to you know let slide with a simpler solution until you've actually encountered the actual world that you're trying to apply stuff to. Yep. And but unfortunately, you know, if you haven't done that, you know, you, people can make up a lot of things they they hope they expect might be the problem, and then they can work on those things, and they can get a lot of credit from their colleagues for saying, "Wow, you've you've worked on what seems to be an important problem." But again, again you don't know if it's really the important problem until you've connected it with actual customers, actual revenue, actual applications, Uh, typically in software, typically in all design. uh, It's just too easy to make mistakes about where the real problems are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, talk to your customers, people. Um, okay, cool. Um, well, with that, Robin, um, we're pretty much out of time now. So thank you so much for coming on, both chatting about Elephant in the Brain and for chatting about um, some stuff on the Ethereum and blockchain ecosystem. Been great to be here. Yeah, it was fun. Um, and if you want to support me, um, you can go to Patreon, the thing that I was talking about earlier, patreon.com slash Rieslandmark, that's slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Or if you're interested in supporting with Ether, you can go to staketree.com um, and use my same staketree.com slash Rieslandmark, um, and you can support with Ether there. Um, so with that, thank you so much, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>